I don't know if you have the kind of phone like I have, but I have an iPhone. And on my phone, I have Siri. And Siri is this helpful little voice I can talk to when I have a question. And the other day, I pushed the Siri button, and I and I didn't talk to her right away. And, I, and it came, a message came on my screen. It said, what can I help you with? I just thought that was really nice of her to ask. What, what can I help you with? And I didn't answer right away. And, and on my screen, she started giving me page after page, list after list of all the kinds of questions and commands that she can handle. Now, if you have Siri or something like it on your phone, then you know sometimes that works really well and other times not so well. A couple of weeks ago, I was doing research and I was doing some research about China. So I asked Siri, I said, Siri, tell me where I can find the Great Wall in China. And she answered, David, here are the names of the Chinese restaurants in your area. Useful information, but not anywhere near what I wanted to know. So Siri's ability to actually help is limited. Jesus' ability to help is unlimited. Now, why am I comparing Siri and our Lord? For only one reason. In our passage today, in the amazing passage we're in today, Jesus is going to ask three different people, And he's going to ask you and me a very Siri-like question. He's going to ask, what do you want me to do for you? Think about that. Jesus is asking us, what do you want me to do for you? Shouldn't that be the other way around? Shouldn't we be going to to the Lord and saying, you are the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. What do you want? what, what, What do you want me to do for you? But yet, He in his love and his grace and his kindness says to us, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? What would you want Jesus to do for you today? Do you have a thought? Think about that as we go through this passage. See if maybe your answer changes by the time we get to the end of the the passage. This section of scripture is rich with insight for ourselves and about our Lord. First, let's pray together. Father, it's it's summer. I love summer. And it's just such a joy to come to this place and worship you. A place where we can open our Bibles and we can openly express our love and faith in you. Lord, as we open this section of your word, we would never want to do so under our own power. So we ask that your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Please open our eyes to help us see you in ways that we have never seen you before. We ask this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be covering verses 32 to 52. But instead of just reading all of that in one piece, I'd like to read it in three sections. So let me put the outline up. As this passage breaks into, we're going to start with some more vital information from the Lord. And then we're going to get into a section on wrong thinking. Fascinating section on wrong thinking. And then end with a glorious section of scripture about 
true discipleship, a model of perfect discipleship. Let's start together. We'll we'll read uh, the vital information, verses 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him up to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So Jesus and his followers are on the road to Jerusalem. What are you picturing right now in your mind as you picture Jesus and his followers on that road to Jerusalem? Are you picturing nice, a nice smooth road, you know, nice rolling hills, maybe some olive trees for some shade, maybe some vineyards, some villages? Are you picturing this nice, serene, kind of a gentle stroll with Jesus? Let me show you a picture of what this road looks like. Here is the road leaving Jericho, going to Jerusalem. He's about to come to Jericho. This is where the Lord is heading. Jerusalem as we're told, they're going up to Jerusalem. Up is the right word. Jerusalem is 3,500 feet higher in elevation than where Jesus is starting. So it's a serious, long, 20-plus mile hike to the cross. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him at the end of that road. He told us very plainly he would be tortured He would be beaten, he'd be spit upon, he'd be humiliated, he would die in the most excruciating way. And did you notice in our scripture where it says Jesus was on this road? He was out in front. He was leading. He was walking strong and determined. He was leading to the cross. You know, sometimes I don't, I don't think we give Jesus enough credit for his courage. Maybe that's because courage is a human trait. And we forget Jesus is 100% God, but he was also 100% human. He walked courageously straight toward Calvary to be crucified for you and for me. The courage of Jesus, to me, is especially amazing in light of our frequent cowardice as Christians. Often we're afraid to walk boldly. For Jesus, but he was not afraid to walk boldly for us. So on this road, Jesus is out in front. He's walking bold. He's walking sure. And what were the people behind him doing? They were amazed and they were afraid. They were amazed at all the things he had just been teaching them, which we've been covering with Pastor Mark so beautifully the last few weeks. But they were also afraid because they could tell something significant was about to happen. Something that they didn't understand. As we, you and I, as we follow Jesus on our road that looks rugged and uphill a lot of the times, aren't we often amazed and afraid too? We're amazed because we see what Jesus is doing in our life. We're amazed to read what he says in his word, but we're afraid when things happen we don't understand. On that road to Jerusalem, the people following Jesus were walking with unsure and timid steps. And you know what? 
That's okay. That's okay for them to have timid steps and it's okay for us to have timid steps. Even timid steps are good steps when we're directly following Jesus. Isn't it fantastic? Isn't it amazing that the Lord accepts our imperfect discipleship? Isn't that great news? Our Lord knows about our weaknesses and our worries and our slow wits better than we do. And yet, He patiently, lovingly brings us along and gets us exactly where we need to go one step at a time. Jesus did not rebuke His disciples for being unsure. He just continued to teach them. He continued to tell them the vital things they needed to understand that we need to understand. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's the first time he said we. That word we must have sounded ominous to those disciples because now he was directly tying their future and his future together. This is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death and resurrection. Do you remember the other two? Let's turn back and look at them. Mark has already covered this for us. Well, let's remind ourselves in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 931. Let's just remember what Jesus said the previous two times. In Mark 8.31, we read, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Look at the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 31. This is the second time. For he was teaching, he continued to teach his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. And then we read it almost word for word again in chapter 10. So the question for us is, why is the Lord repeating this vital information three different times? Almost word for word. What's that all about? He is repeating it because the disciples aren't listening. I hope we are. They had tuned out. Every time he got to the critical point, why he came to earth, they tuned out. They had other things on their minds. You know, it's impossible to hear the Lord. And it's impossible to hear anyone, for that matter, when our minds are elsewhere. Turn back to Mark chapter 8. Let's, let's read about their reaction. We're going to read, we're going to remind ourselves how they reacted to Jesus' three um, predictions of his death and resurrection. Mark 8:31 we'll read to verse 33. And Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after 3 days rise again. Verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. So Jesus was being very clear. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus chose that moment to plainly, clearly, straightforward, tell them exactly why he came. He gave him his purpose as the Messiah. Peter didn't like what he heard at all. So Peter decided he had a better idea. He took Jesus aside to scold him for his lousy plan. Let me have put Matthew 16 on the screen for you so you don't have to turn to it right now. Matthew has the same account of this. And Matthew records for us what, what uh, Peter actually came and said to the Messiah. He said, God forbid it, Lord. 
this shall never happen to you. In other words, Peter decided to take the Son of God alone and say, Jesus, your plan is lousy. I'm not having it. It's so easy for us to be like Peter, isn't it? When we hold our own ideas higher than the Lord's. You know, we need to be constantly aware of the deceitfulness of our own thoughts. Human concerns. We all have concerns. Our human concerns cause us to jump to the wrong conclusions, just like Peter did. We need to study this book together. We need to study it on our own. So we know what God has really said, not what we think he said, or not what somebody tells us he said. But we have to really know. Otherwise, we start to get the wrong ideas. And as we read his word, we need to constantly pray, Lord, show me where my thoughts are not perfectly in line with your thoughts. Do you ever pray a prayer like this? Do you ever pray, Lord, show me where my thoughts about you are wrong? Do you ever pray a prayer like that? Do you know why that's so important? Because when we start following our own ideas about Jesus, even without realizing it, we're not following Jesus anymore. We're following Satan. Peter thought he was following Jesus, but he was following his own ideas. And Jesus turned and looked right at Peter, who thought he was doing the right thing. And Peter said, get out of my way, Satan. So that was the first time that Jesus began to teach them why he came. Peter didn't understand a word of it because his mind was full of human concerns. We have to be careful about this too, you and I. It's so easy, so easy to allow the concerns in our lives to drown out the voice of the Lord. Let's review the second reaction in Mark chapter 9. We'll read verse 31 again and read to verse 33. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. It came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Hmm. Looks... Looks can be so deceiving. On the outside, it looked like they were following Jesus. But on the inside, they were just following their own self-interest. That's a nasty trap that any of us can fall into. The disciples didn't understand what Jesus was trying to tell them because they had their mind on more important matters. To them at that moment, much more important than listening to what Jesus had to say, they had to work out between themselves who was the greatest. It's amazing the things we let become more important to us than what the Lord has to say. Then we come to chapter 10, our passage today, where Jesus gives us the third and final prediction. Let's read that again together, verses 33 and 34. Jesus said for the third time, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. 
And three days later, he will rise again. This third prediction is more detailed than the other two. Jesus reveals some new information. He says that he'll be delivered to the Gentiles. This is an additional insult and betrayal the Lord will have to endure. And he says they're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to beat him beyond recognition before they kill him. Jesus just declared in terrible detail exactly what was going to happen. Exactly what the excruciating and humiliating penalty was that he was going to pay for our sin. So, did the disciples get it this time? And the third time around, did they finally hear and understand? No. Not yet. Because of wrong thinking. We're going to read about wrong thinking now in part two. Let's pick it up. Mark chapter 10, verse 35, and we'll read to verse 45. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? There's that question I was talking about at the beginning. What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. This request of James and John reveals their wrong thinking. Their minds were so full of self-serving ideas they couldn't possibly understand a word that the self-sacrificing Savior had to say. These two brothers assumed that God's kingdom works the same way the world does. In the world, we compete with each other. That's what the world system is all about. We compete with each other for status and power. It's all about getting noticed, getting promoted, getting more power, showing that you're better than somebody else. Power and titles, they can dazzle us and fill us with pride. And we just want to get that title and we want to get to that next rung so much for ourselves. But in God's kingdom... Honor is not based on competition and it's not based on personal superiority. God has a radically different standard for greatness. In verse 35, Jesus and uh, James and John came to Jesus and basically asked the Lord to sign a blank check. He said, teacher, we want to do whatever you ask. In Matthew's account of this, 
when Matthew's telling of this same story, he, he tells us, he gives us more information. He tells us that actually James and John's mother was in this same group following Jesus on the road. And mommy went to Jesus first and asked that her boys be promoted. And then after they were, she was done, then the boys repeated her request. So they came to Jesus and said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. How brazen is that? When I first read this, I was, I was sort of offended at how rude that would be to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I ask. Until I realize I often pray that way. Maybe you do too. Sometimes, do we talk to Jesus like he works for us? Lord, I want you to do this about that, and I want you to do that about this. Jesus patiently and sincerely answered them by saying, what do you want me to do for you? That's that question I was talking about at the beginning. What do you want me to do for you? Do you have your answer yet? Keep thinking about it. Your answer to that question, my answer to that question, just like the answer James and John gave, reveals our true motives. The answer reveals whether we're seeking our own glory or we seek the glory of God. Now, most Jews in that day believed that the Messiah was coming to set up a political kingdom on earth. Maybe this is what James and John thought. Or they might have understood that Jesus was talking about a heavenly throne. Either way, all they really cared about was the royal seating chart. That's all they cared about. Where are we going to sit? In their day, the highest place of honor was to the right of the throne. Second highest place of honor to the left of the throne. So basically they came and they said, Jesus, we want you to give us the two top spots in your administration, whether that's in heaven or in earth. But in verse 33, Jesus very properly shifted their attention away from the reward of discipleship to the cost. Cost of discipleship. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism for which I am baptized? This cup, a cup symbolizes something that is granted to us by God. It can mean joy and prosperity, but most of the time the cup means wrath and judgment like it does here. And the baptism refers to Jesus' willingness to suffer greatly, even to the point of death, to accomplish the will of God. So, Jesus just asked James and John, are you prepared to follow me? No matter the cost? Are you prepared to follow me no matter the cost? Wow! That's a much tougher question than what can I do for you? Are you prepared to follow me no matter the cost? Jesus is asking, are you following me or are you following the rewards? Without hesitation though, the two brothers said, yes, we're following you. We're ready for anything. Bring it on. These guys had a lot of swagger. Jesus did not nickname them the sons of thunder for nothing. Jesus said, okay, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and you'll be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. You know what I wonder? I wonder if James and John smiled at that news. I wonder if they thought they just won. I wonder if they noticed that Jesus wasn't smiling. James went on to become the first apostle martyred for the gospel. 
And according to reasonably reliable writing, historic writing, people tried to kill John by throwing him into a vat of boiling oil, but he survived. You and I may not be called to die a martyr's death, but a passage like this should help us get our priorities straight. Are we following Jesus to get glory for ourselves? Or are we prepared to do whatever he asks of us to bring glory to him? Whatever he asks. In verse 40, Jesus added, But to sit on my right or sit on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Honors in God's kingdom is not to be bestowed on the basis of selfish ambition, but only only on the basis of God's sovereign will. So the good news for us is we don't need to worry about the rewards. We have enough just to follow Jesus and leave the rewards up to our loving and perfect Heavenly Father. But all this talk about sitting on the left or sitting on the right got the attention of the other ten disciples at that point, And all of a sudden they got into it again. I think it got all their competitive juices stirred up again, right? So Jesus called the twelve together. In the Greek, this means he summoned them. He summoned them together, which means a decisive lesson is coming. Let's read it again, verses 42 to 45. Calling them, calling the disciples to himself or summoning them, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What a statement. What a statement. Jesus is still trying to teach them, still trying to teach us, that the kingdom of God is radically different than any kingdom on earth, past, present, or future, especially in matters of power and greatness. You know, the world equates power with dominance. People get power to control others. That's what the power is all about. But Jesus rejects this model completely. He says it shall not be that way among you. There is no place in his kingdom and there is no place in his church for domineering leaders. True greatness, says Jesus, comes from only one thing. Humble, unselfish service. He said, whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Now back in his day, a slave was at the very bottom of the social ladder. And to be a slave of all means, you had to be a slave to the other slaves. So you were not just at the bottom, you were at the bottom of the bottom. The disciples had to shake their head at that comment, as they tried to understand this illogical and confusing statement, Jesus just told them, if you want to get to the very top, you have to serve at the lowest bottom you can find. The truly great person in the kingdom of God is the person that's not looking for greatness at all wants to serve others to the glory of God. Just like so many of you. Just like so many of you do. Jesus not only gives us clear instructions, He goes on to give us a very clear role model. He gives us Himself. 
Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Son of Man is one of the titles that Jesus uses for himself. Jesus said that even he, the Messiah, the Son of God, that certainly could demand to be served, even he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom means a price paid to free a slave or a prisoner. Many means for all who will believe in him. Jesus came to pay the highest price he could possibly pay to set everyone free that believes in him. Who's the ransom paid to? It's paid to God. Because our sin carries a death penalty. But God doesn't want any of us to die. So he sent his own son, Jesus, to pay that price that we could never pay. He sent Jesus to die in our place. Let me put a verse on the screen. I probably don't need to put on the screen because you all know this one. John 3.16. But it clearly states that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Messiah. That whoever, the many, believe in him shall not perish. Their debt is paid in full. They'll have eternal life. Jesus took the punishment we deserve. Jesus, the innocent, died for us, the guilty. I'll put it, I'd like to put a quote on the screen for us to look at. The death of Jesus pays our debt in full as the full expression of God's love for us. The death of Jesus pays our debt in full as the full expression of God's love for us. This is the most glorious truth in this, all of Scripture. So to wrap up part two, we see two radically different points of view. The world says, get as much as you can. The Lord says, give as much as you can. Wrong, selfish thinking will trip us up every step we take when we're trying to follow Jesus. We need to get our eyes off of ourselves. We need to get our eyes off of the world and get our eyes focused on Jesus. We're going to see that clearly in our last passage today. Ironically, we're going to see clearly through the eyes of a blind man. Let's read together the end of the, from verse 46 to the end of the chapter of Mark 10. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? There's that question again. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. This is the model of discipleship. The healing of this blind man is unique. 
among all the healings in the gospel. Bartimaeus is the only person that is identified by name when Jesus heals him. Up to this point, everyone else in the Gospels is, uh, is described in some way, but we are never given their names. Jesus healed a leper in Galilee in Mark chapter 1. He healed a paralytic in Capernaum in chapter 2. He healed Jairus' daughter in chapter 5. We don't know their names. Only Bartimaeus is identified by his name. And this is also the final healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. But Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, what he lacked in eyesight, He had more than enough insight. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus passed through Jericho. Jericho lies 840 feet below sea level. Let's remind ourselves of the road. I'm going to put the road picture back up again. We'll just keep it up for the remainder of our few minutes together. So from 800 feet below sea level, Jesus was going to climb to about 2,500 feet above sea level or about 3,500 feet. Rugged, uphill, Climb where the cross is waiting. In verse 46, as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Do you sense the air of expectancy in this verse? It's loaded. Something amazing is about to happen. For the next few minutes, I'd like you to do something. I'd like you to put yourself in Bartimaeus' place. Put yourself in the role of the blind man sitting beside the road when Jesus passed by. And to help you do this, I'd like you to do something. I'd like you all to close your eyes. Some of you have already had your eyes closed for quite a while now. (laughs) So let that person keep their eyes closed. But the rest of you, keep your eyes closed for two or three minutes. I'm just going to tell you the story of Bartimaeus again. You listen with your eyes closed and put yourself right there. Nobody's going to come up and touch you or or anything. So it's safe. I'll tell you when to open your eyes. You don't have to worry. Just close your eyes. Imagine that you are the blind man sitting beside the road. You're blind, so you're unable to find work. So every day you have to sit along this hot, rugged road, begging for help, help from people you can't even see. Today you're camped out in your normal spot just like you've been doing for as long as you can remember. The air is cool this morning, so you're wearing an outer cloak. You're listening. You're listening for the sound of feet coming your way, or the sound of a rolling cart, or anything that tells you that people are near, so you can start to call out for scraps of food or money. You have to be very careful, though. You've trained your ears to discern the sound that Roman soldiers make as they pass by. You don't want to call out to the soldiers because they will treat you harshly if you bother them. Just now, your ears pick up the sound of many people coming towards you up that road. You hear many different voices engaged in many different conversations. They're sandals. You hear them. They sound like a parade of treading feet. You hear Jesus' name mentioned, so now you know that he is about to walk right by you. So you call out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Immediately, many stern voices bark back at you. Be quiet. Be still. Silence you. It's a shower of insensitive comments coming from people that are supposedly following Jesus. You're used to this, though. 
Everyone shouts demeaning things at you. That's the story of your life. But what you lack in social standing, you make up for with persistence. So you shout even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. You call Jesus the Son of David because you know who He is. He's not a teacher. He's not a prophet. He is the promised Messiah. You also know full well that God does not owe you anything. So you humbly cry out only for mercy. All of a sudden, those disapproving voices stop shouting at you. In fact, all sound ceases because everyone on the road has stopped in their tracks. They're all standing perfectly still. Even the air is still. In the sudden silence, you hear Jesus say, Call him here. No one has ever stopped for you before. People might throw a scrap of food or a coin your way, but they keep on going. Nobody ever wants to stop and talk to you. They want to ignore you. Everyone ignores you except Jesus, the Messiah. The Son of God just stopped only because He heard you. He heard your voice. All those voices that were mean and nasty just a moment ago now sound positive and reassuring. They say, take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. Fickle people. A minute ago they wanted you to be quiet and leave them alone. Now they cheer you on. Great news. Get up. Jesus wants to talk to you right away. But you don't really care about those voices. You're excited about Jesus. Your heart is pounding. You strip off that outer robe because it's too tattered and dirty to wear before the King of Kings. You scramble to your feet. Hands take hold of you and guide you onto the road toward Jesus. You take several quick steps. Then the guiding hands stop you. You can't see Jesus, but you know you're standing right in front of Him. He's right there. Inches away, you can feel Him looking at you. A long second passes. Then you hear His voice again. He says, What do you want me to do for you? You're used to people speaking down to you. But Jesus is addressing you with warmth and care. His question is sincere and personal. You answer, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. You call him Rabboni because that title means my Lord, my Master. It's the same word that you and other Jews often use when praying to God. You are now speaking to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And you do not ask Jesus for honor or status like James and John did when they heard this question. You ask only for mercy. You ask only to be rescued from your blind and dark world. No sooner do the words leave your lips than the voice of Jesus answers, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately you can see perfectly. Okay, open your eyes. Wake up the person next to you. Can you imagine you're on that road and you open your eyes for the first time and the first thing you see is the face of Jesus? He smiles at you probably. And then he turns away and continues on up that road toward the cross. Jesus just told you, go. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. He has set you free to go anywhere you want to go. You could go into the country and see the wildflowers in bloom. That's beauty you've never seen before. 
You could go to the shore and watch the sun sink over that horizon and light up the sky with colors you can't even imagine. Or you could go into town and go find work so you would no longer have to beg. But you don't want to go your way because Jesus' way has become your way. Now that you've seen Jesus, you want to spend the rest of your life looking at him. When Jesus said your faith has made you well, in the Greek this also means your faith has saved you. So your physical eyes and spiritual eyes were just opened in that instant in time. Jesus just gave you your sight and salvation. Bartimaeus is a picture of true discipleship for us to follow. Once we've seen Jesus through our eyes of faith, we can't get enough of him. We want to follow him wherever he leads us. We no longer want to go our way. Why don't we want to go our way? Because his way becomes infinitely more exciting and desirable to us than our old way. Bartimaeus didn't know this. But Jesus was on the way to the cross. So he would not be passing by this way again. It's a good thing for Bartimaeus he didn't think I don't know if I'm ready for Jesus today. I'll catch him next time. It wouldn't be a next time. So as we close, who do you identify with in our passage today? Who do you identify with? Do you sort of identify with James and John? Are you in the process of trying to follow Jesus but also trying to build a following for yourself? Or are you like the blind man? on the side of the road, meaning you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, are you going to let Jesus pass by you again today? Or are you going to call out to him for mercy and ask him to open your eyes and save you from your blind and dark world? If you don't call out to Jesus right now, are you sure you're going to get another chance? Or are you like Bartimaeus? Are you on the road following behind the Lord? And is it at the desire of your heart to follow him wherever he leads you, no matter the cost? To the James and Johns that are here today, to those sitting on the side of the road today, and to those on the road following Jesus today, he asks each one of us, what do you want me to do for you? How will you answer him? Let's pray. Father, it's too much for me to understand why you would send your son to die for me. Why you would watch your son walk up that road to the cross to pay the penalty we all deserve. But we thank you, dear Father. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. And Lord, it is my prayer. It is our prayer. No one leaves here today without getting on that road to follow you wherever it leads, no matter the cost. We want your way, Father, your way, Jesus, to be our way. We ask this in the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.